As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit All right. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Doesn't have anything to do with boomer tech. It has to do with the way that this is set up. It's the Catalina update has made OBS incompatible. It has nothing to do with the boomer tech. Welcome to tonight's stream. Let's cross our fingers and hopefully it won't crash. Worked good last night. I don't know what the deal is. Welcome. It's finally time to deal with this with its proper treatment. Now, set of occultism is not a significant movement. It's not a movement that has a significant number of people. It is an online movement for the most part. Aside from a few independent chapels, aside from a few people who are online, a bunch of e-LARPing groups, there's not really a significant set of a conscious movement because I think people kind of intuitively know that this whole papal system falls apart if the papacy is not the papacy, right? If there's been some defection on the part of the Roman see at some point in time, that's pretty arbitrary. If there's been some hijacking, coup d'etat, wherein the Roman see itself has now become the seat of antichrist then essentially the fundamental components of the roman catholic church as it's conceived of and defined according to the roman catholic church particularly at vatican one and in documents like satis cognitum and mystici corporis the fundamental constitution of the church has been altered and that's what we will see tonight so we will be working uh, principally from uh, our friend john pontrello Shout out to John Pontrello and his excellent book, Set of Acontis Delusion. Can't get the light right. John C. Pontrello. You can buy this book on Amazon. And of course, we, not totally, but we helped John Pontrello come to to orthodoxy. He, let, he wrote us a nice little note there. So we welcome our brother John to the Orthodox Church. Uh, I don't remember the exact date of when he was received, but... He sent me a nice little note there uh, about a year ago, last year. So John's book is great because he was uh, a very avid 
uh, instead of a contest. I was myself for many years. Um, I, held, I held this as an opinion even while I attended the SSPX. And so my reasoning was that uh, although I don't have, obviously, the authority, no individual set of a contest has the authority to actually dethrone, uh, you know, the anti-popes and install a new pope or something like that. We believe that privately, of course, a person had the right or the duty, you could even say, to reject a formal heretic who claimed to be the successor to the office of Peter. And, of course, the bases upon which that was done were manifest heresy. Now, at the time when I first got into this, it was still the papacy of John Paul II. So this was many years ago. Um, and the first exposure to the set of a contraposition I had was uh, not what most people would, would expect. I was actually attending the Latin Mass regularly. I'd been reading the writings of Archbishop Lefebvre uh, as I was going to the SSPX Latin Mass. I'd already seen a lot of the problems in the Novus Ordo. And, and ironically, my Novus Ordo Church, where I came into the Roman Catholic system, was fairly conservative. So uh, there happened to be some people at that conservative Novus Ordo church who were big fans of the Latin Mass. And so they handed me some Latin Mass magazines and they handed me some works by Dietrich von Hildebrand. And, uh, you know, I read Marie Curie and AA1025. And I started reading the Tan Books stuff, right, because that was authentic Roman Catholicism. So eventually, though, you encounter this position of, well, what about this group? which is actually a thousand splintered cadre of sects that claim to be the authentic continuation of the Roman Catholic Church who believe that the seat of Peter is vacant. And the seat of Peter has been vacant according to arbitrary decision by these various groups from various points in time, most of whom think that the last valid pope was Pius Twelfth. So the apostasy then begins purportedly around the time of John the 23rd, perhaps later into his pontificate, whatever. There are some fringe groups who believe that there is a privation of the office of the papacy, said a privationist, at some arbitrarily decided upon time. There are some groups who are nonists who believe that it goes back to Pius IX. Regardless, they're all over the place and they are just like Protestants. And not only is the modus operandi, the praxis of Sedevacantism, just like Protestantism, it actually holds the same ecclesiology of Protestantism, as we'll see. I know this because I went to Protestant seminary, come from the Protestant world. Uh, I was a student of John Calvin in my younger days, my uh, late teens and early 20s. And I was a big, big fan and student of Bonson, as many of you guys know. So I studied uh, Calvinist theology for many years. I read all the uh, 1556 Institutes, both volumes. I read a lot of R.J. Rush, Jenny. I have Calvin's commentaries. I have a vast library of, of Calvinist apologetics and literature. I was involved in that for many years. I never got into Lutheranism, but I did have a phase of reading Luther. So I read seven or eight of Luther's books uh, back in my early 20s as well because I was really interested in all the reformers. And uh, I don't think anybody's unclear on the fact that the Roman Catholic, or that the, the Calvinist ecclesiology is the doctrine of the invisible church, which is that the true believers in Christ, the true elect, of course, are a invisible elect, unknown group amongst perhaps various groups that claim to be Calvinist or Protestant. 
And perhaps if you're a liberal Calvinist, you might even think that there's an elect amongst Roman Catholicism or Orthodoxy. But that's a little uh, strained there because they don't really hold the solas. But maybe somebody accidentally amongst Roman Catholicism or Orthodoxy accidentally holds the solas. So maybe they're part of the secret elect. But regardless, the Calvinist doctrine of the invisible church is that that's the true church. The true body is invisible. The, the visible church of christ is split and divided amongst countless sects and it's up to anybody's guess as to which of these sects do and do not count is it groups that believe in baptismal regeneration or is that a work that violates sola fide is it groups that believe in the real presence but also affirm unconditional election or is the real presence idolatry depends on which high church anglican or congregationalist puritan that you ask anyway Point being is that my introduction to the set of a contest thesis was uh, Ana- uh, Kumar Swami. So there are two Kumar Swamis. Ananda Kumar Swami was a perennialist. And if I remember correctly, his son, Rama Kumar Swami, wa- wrote one of the first set of a contest books. I think you could probably find it on Amazon. I don't, it's not in print, I wouldn't think, but. He probably wrote this in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was a long, I don't know, five, 600 page book. And it was the my first introduction to the idea that, well, maybe the solution to the problems of the liberalism and revolution of Vatican II is to proffer the idea that the seat has been vacant. Perhaps we can look to instances in the history of the church where there were interregnums, where there was a vacancy in the sea. And maybe that could be a solution or a way or a model to figure out that there was a, some kind of coup d'etat, some kind of hijacking of the church around the time of Vatican II prior to somewhere in there. And uh, initially I thought, well, I don't really buy this because I, I was still going to the SSPX, but uh, it, it opened my, my mind to that possibility. I also read uh, the SSPX treatise, right? Instead of a contism, a false solution to a real problem and as I was reading Lefebvre's books, I noticed that Archbishop Lefebvre almost seemed to kind of anticipate sort of a contest. I mean, at times he, he gets really close, like in his letters, open letters to Catholics or whatever that, that book was called. And he almost sounds like he thinks that the Roman see has apostatized, that there is a defection and that perhaps we're in the last days. Perhaps there's some sort of in extremist position that we're going to have to, to, to do and and I think that you know a lot of people think well that was probably part of the reason for his his justification in his mind for why he ordained the four bishops of the SSPX which is ultimately what led to the excommunication by by John Paul. Of course we all know that the Society of St Pius X has for a long time kind of been split amongst itself between people who have wanted to go back to Rome, Philae, and these these people. I haven't been, I've have had no contact or any interest in any of that world in many, many years. So I'm just remembering back to the way things were like a decade ago. Uh, it was around that time that I started looking into Orthodoxy, 2008, 7, so 11 or 12 years, I guess. Sort of looking elsewhere because uh, to me, it looked like the set of a contest position was really a dead end. And we're going to see tonight why it is a dead end. <laughs> And why ultimately the set of a conscious position is a denial of Vatican I in terms of the fundamental constitution of the church, the way that Vatican I and the encyclicals around that time define the fundamental constitution and the essential components of the church, as well as 
the nature of indefectibility. Now, as a set of a contest, I had, of course, many responses to these objections. But what I didn't have was an accurate understanding, as a set of a contest, of what the Roman Catholic position and dogma of the Roman See itself is. And that's very crucial because the Roman Catholic Church actually has defined what the Roman See is, how it relates to the fundamental unity and constitution of the church in the Roman Catholic position. Right? We're not talking about orthodoxy. We will see eventually how, by the way, as John Pontrello argues, the set of a position actually is more in harmony with Eastern Orthodoxy. Right, And it's a logical progression that that position actually leads one to Orthodoxy, as we'll see as we go through John Pontrello's argumentation. So John, I think, I had already kind of moved out of uh, the world of Sedevacantism at the time that, that uh, John Pontrello was still involved in it. And he continued to be for many years later, uh, only <clears throat> coming into orthodoxy uh, somewhat recently in the, in the last few years. So John stayed within that, that realm. I didn't know John back in, in the 2006, 7, 8 period. A lot of the set of contests do kind of know each other. They know of each other because it was it's a fairly small online world. It's, right? it's not a big world. So people kind of interacted with ideas and websites and exchange positions. But uh, we're not going to be focusing totally tonight on any specific group. We're going we're going to undercut the whole position, and we're going to hopefully successfully do it to the to the extent that uh, in terms of the actual objective position argumentation, there's nowhere else left to go for this ridiculous position, and ultimately it does end up ridiculous. One thing I want to point out though about uh, John's book is that he does recognize that both the Novus Ordo position and the Set of Acontas position have points that are correct. And they both have points that are incorrect. And that's why it's such a difficult clash, a difficult argumentation amongst the world of Roman Catholicism, right? And of course there is, we're not going to be dealing uh, with the halfway house of the Society of St. Pius X tonight. That's not, that's not under the purview tonight. Perhaps in the future I'll deal with an actual uh, SSP exposition because really only all you need to refute the SSPX is to point out that the universal ordinary magisterium must be adhered to. Vatican I is abundantly clear that you have to accept the universal ordinary magisterium. And this is actually a point that set of make against the Society of St. Pius X, that they're not, strictly speaking, co- consistently papal. They actually undermine Vatican I and the very modus operandi of the Society of St. Pius X in rejecting universal ordinary magisterium is itself schismatic. Absolutely. In the Roman Catholic system, the Pope has absolutely the authority to, to, to determine who are and who are not bishops, who possesses jurisdiction, licit, sacramental dispensing, etc. Right? The office of the keys, jurisdiction, right? all of that validity, whether it's illicit or illicit sacraments, that's all determined under the purview of the Roman See. In the in the SSS in the SS the SSS uh, the SSPX position, they take it upon themselves to determine when they would like to accept the ordinary magisterium, and they will, like a Protestant, pick and choose. Well, I will decide that that canonization is not actually part of the ordinary magisterium i will not accept the canonization of john paul ii perhaps right i will however accept the canonization of alphonsus liguori and augustine right totally inconsistent if you can reject canonizations 
you can reject all the canonizations, obviously. So the SSP exposition is inconsistent. Now, let's move then to a set of occultism. I'm going to rehearse still some of my reading and trek down this road. Before we get to that, though, we're going to see that the set of occultism position has the exact same problem. Not only does it, it's correct to call out the SSPX in their halfway house and in their arbitrary rejection of the universal ordinary magisterium, which is, according to Vatican I, very clearly under the Petrian charism. It's under the charism of infallibility. But you also have to accept the normative ordinary magisterium that's not universal. And you have to accept that with docility. You, could, you perhaps could hold that privately in your own opinion. You think that ordinary magisterium that's not universal is incorrect, but you cannot reject it. You do not have the authority and the right and the purview and the privileges to judge the first C. No man judges the first C. And so the way that the set of a conscious position is going to try to maneuver around this will, of course, be to say, well, then that is not the first C. That guy over there, Frank, sitting in that, uh, that chair there that's supposed to be St. Pete's chair, it's not the Roman C. And then thus I have solved my theological dilemma. Is that going to work? It's not going to work. So, but before we get to Patrollo and we dive in, and this may take a couple lectures. I don't know how long we're, we're going to be getting into this. Thank you. For, I will have to probably read these super chats as they come in because the new system, like the super chats, kind of disappear. I haven't figured out how to read all the super chats over time. Now, Patrollo's book is not too long, it's about 240, 50 pages. Um, And it's well-sourced, uh, very very clear, very to the point. Um, I can't see how... I mean, there's a few set of accountants who've given him bad reviews, but I can't see that they actually read this book because, uh, I mean, John's argument is pretty airtight. I mean, maybe there's a couple places where you could launch a criticism. But, uh, I mean, so what? I mean, I, that's typically what Roman Catholics do is like, like when I debated over the issues of uncreated grace and they, they spent... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like they acted like they'd refuted me because I used the the wrong term when the substance of my argument was unchanged. Like I said, infused substance and I should have said infused accident. As if that changes the fact that the grace itself is still dogmatically taught by the Roman church to be created. Uh, I mean, that's just, that's how these people will operate is like total shibboleth obsessive people. They'll ignore the, the, the overall thrust of your argument hyper-focus on 
pronunciation of a word uh, and ignore everything else that you've said as if that constitutes an actual argument and it doesn't but what we need to understand is that the set of a conscious position is a reaction and it's a in a way a legitimate reaction within the world of Roman Catholicism the problem of course is that it's trying to reconcile things that don't reconcile but before we launch into it I wanted to say so I moved from reading that stuff and I was also still reading a lot of the SSPX literature I mean I subscribed to SSPX materials i would get them in the mail i would even still read people who weren't sspx i would read the traditional sites and the traditional authors i read all of michael davies treatise on vatican ii and i read attila gumares and i read tradition in action i read their books and uh then i got the radeckis right the twin brothers radeckis who have their book on vatican uh, set of occultism and i launched into that and then other groups i read their works as well and uh, I had some email interactions with a lot of these different groups. I had, I had friends that were in the Society of St. Pius V, one of the set of Acontis groups. And I knew some people who attended the CMRI, another one of the set of Acontis sects. And a lot of people's consensus about these groups is that uh, there's a lot of sincere people in those groups, but that they're kind of run by just kooky cult leaders. And then I started learning about the wandering bishops phenomena, the Episcopi Bagantes which is a thing you should look into if you're not familiar with it. But it's kind of like the these people who seek out valid succession to start their own apostolic succession cults. Uh, it happens in the world of, the, of, of, of non-canonical churches, whether that's Orthodox, whether that's uh, Nestorian churches, Oriental Orthodox, or Roman Catholic. The, the world of Episcopi Vagantes is fraught with fraudsters, con men, kooks, and spooks. And I don't think anybody who has any knowledge of that world will doubt that. <laughs> I mean, even to the point of some of these people being just outright lunatics. Um, and this is where it starts to verge on the people who are like the conclavists, right? The Palmyrian sect, the people who declare their own Pope uh, Michael, Pope Michael, uh, Pope Boniface on Twitter, uh, if you've seen... Pope, there is actually a Twitter Pope. Uh, I can't tell if it's a troll or a guy who takes himself seriously, but he's pronounced many excommunications on me from Twitter. So uh, if if by chance everything that I've said is wrong, and gosh darn it, the last valid Pope actually is that dude Boniface on Twitter, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, come on. Talk about clown world. So I read all that stuff and then I read all of the set of material that I could get my hands on. And I met with Jerry Matatix one time and we had a big uh, detente discussion debate because that was a right around the time I was thinking maybe this is not where it's at. Maybe orthodoxy has a better approach to ecclesiology in the church. Maybe the papacy itself is part of the problem. And I think once you're out in the set of a conscious thesis position or entertaining it or you've been in that world for a little while you start to realize the kookiness of it the, the constant arguments and splits they split worse than protestants do the guru cult mentality of a lot of their leaders the absolutely absurd unworkable nature of the position that it kind of leads to the 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 idea that there's not really any hierarchs left it's very hard to find out if there are any hierarchs left 
And in fact, that's really going to be leading us to where the position comes to a dead end. Because it's going to compromise on Vatican I's explanation of what indefectibility is and Vatican I's explanation of what the the fundamental constitution of the church is. Namely, that it is the office of the papacy, the living successors of the papacy. The jurisdiction that comes from being in union with the office of the papacy and the successors in that office. So there's no, as we're going to say, there's no such thing as an invisible chair that everybody can be in union with and possess visible unity that then goes vacant and empty for 60 plus years with no possible way to have a new Pope. And we're going to see that that's utterly now impossible with the Roman church's own definition and explication of what the Roman church's place in the church is. In fact, the Roman pontiff and his office, which ultimately are, can't be divided by the way, as all the set of have to do. They have to, they end up with a Nestorian papacy where you can be in union with a vacant office, but not the actual person in that office. And by the way, that actual successor and person is the guy in Rome. This is the key point that's going to, crush all the set of contest positions because that's actually already been defined that the Roman Curia and who the Roman Curia elects is who's received and recognized and accepted as the Pope by the whole world. As David points out in his video, there is a receptionist theory that's part of Roman Catholicism. Right. The Roman Catholics love to say, oh, you Orthodox are so stupid for saying that the true council, in part, is the one that is eventually received by the church in time. Now, we don't say that's the only thing that makes up a true ecumenical or authoritative normative council, but that is part of what goes into how we know true councils, is that eventually the church, because of the promise in the Orthodox view of indefectibility, the church will recognize and know a true council from a false council. But in the world of Roman Catholicism, that reception theory, it's not, it's not just about reception, but in part it does rely on who the Roman Curia has elected and who has then received in the Roman Curia and the Roman See as the pontiff. And this is the fatal crushing flaw to the set of a contest who have to divorce the See that's in Rome, because that's the Holy See, from the office of Peter. And thus have this invisible church that one is united to as a set of a contest. So let's get into Pontrello's arguments. Now, John launches into uh, the fact that the set of a contest position early on in his book, in the introduction, is that it's, it's really an online movement. It's not an actual position. And this is very difficult when we contrast set of a contestism with Protestantism because we see so many parallels to the Protestant movement. Now, I came out of the Protestant world. So I could see firsthand that, yes, a lot of Protestantism it was very similar to the praxis of Sedevacantism. But in theory, that alone is not going to refute it because we could just simply say that, well, there's a lot of divisive groups, but our goal will be to find the true Sedevacantist group amongst these endless Seda groups that all hate and condemn and excommunicate one another. So John talks about um, 
maybe that what we want to do from the outset is admit that yes, there is clear contradiction between the pre-Vatican II teaching and the post-Vatican II teaching. So we will give the set of a contest credit for admitting and realizing that there's a definite contradiction. I mean, if we look at something like Unum Sanctum, it's very clear that there's absolutely no salvation outside the church, even for people who endure martyrdom for the name of Christ, if they are not united to the Roman See. So even martyrs don't exist outside the visible unity and structure of the Roman Catholic Church, according to Unum Sanctum, right, the famous dictum. That's night and day with what Vatican II says about the possibility of salvation for Jews, Muslims, uh, atheists, etc., etc., animists. And everybody knows this now, right? The documents of Vatican II have opened up <laughs> the floodgates uh, to all modernist liberal conceptions uh oh so now now we have uh now we have people from the twitter pope this is how this is how laughable the set of a contest world is the twitter pope here is going to excommunicate me so another point though is that well we wanted to point out too that that um Second Vatican Council is very clear on, for example, ecumenism. Uh, if we look at pre-Vatican II encyclicals like Mortalium Animos of Pius XI, 1928 encyclical, it actually explicitly talks about the apostasy and the denial of the gospel that's involved in interreligious prayer meetings and services. Now, obviously, after Vatican II and with Assisi 1 and 2, in 1986, the Assisi meetings, and then the SEC part two that happens a few years later. And then with Pachamama and the Amazon Synod, obviously, obviously there has been an evolution, a change in the dogma from the time of Mortalium Animos, calling these actions explicitly apostasy to now them being blessed by the Roman pontiff himself and as a part now of the extraordinary universal magisterium. Yes, Vatican II is magisterial. The fact that Paul VI says that it proclaimed no dogmas does not mean that it's not a dogmatic council. It's the dogmatic constitution on the church. It's in the catechism. It's the universal teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Any Roman Catholic Church you join will tell you that you have to accept Vatican II. Obviously, it's dogma. That's a total trad myth, right? As if I only have to accept the things that are ex cathedra. Uh, no, you have to accept, according to Vatican I, the universal ordinary magisterial teachings, as well as the ex-cathedra and extraordinary magisterial teachings. So the trad myth is nonsense. In fact, you have to submit to the Roman pontiff in all of the apostolic sees decisions, even the decisions that are disciplinary in nature, with docility. Right? You don't have a right to reject and judge the first see. And by the way, the first C is not an empty chair or an invisible platonic form that you're united with. The only first C, an apostolic C, in the Roman church is the one in Rome. That's the only one. There's no other one. And we're going to see that as Pontrello makes his argumentation. Now, um, as he points out, the set of accountants are correct to call out the SSPX on rejecting ordinary magisterium as infallible. 
And so that's why the SSP exposition is not tenable. He's also correct to say that his own experience in the world of set of occultism is basically just a bunch of little tiny fringe cults and people who are desperate and unhappy and ultimately despairing. And that's why the set of occultism position, because it's pretty clear after you've been in it for a while that there's no possibility of the Roman Curia. And that's the only people who can elect the Pope, by the way, uh, unless you adopt a conclavist position uh, as our uh, Twitter Pope here in the chat is trying to do. The only people who have the authority from previous Roman decisions, pontiff decisions, to elect the Roman pontiff are the Roman Curia. And the only way that the conclavists, conclavists are the people who think that they can reject or elect their own pope, and there have been a, a whole spate of these. Uh, look up the Palmyrian Catholic Church, uh, the pope who got his revelations directly from Mary. Mary directly talks to him and tells him what he's supposed to do. Oh, and by the way, he ended up leaving the Palmyrian Catholic Church. So now they have a new one, actually. They have a new, I guess, elected by Mary. Mary decides now. So what this does is it opens up the floodgates to, let's follow the apparitions, follow the latest apparitions, which is a bunch of nonsense. And we're even going to see that they don't even use La Salette correctly. They lie about La Salette. Because La Salette is not, doesn't trump Vatican I. And La Salette is prior to Vatican I. What constitutes the unity of the Roman Church? This will be the key thesis of his book. And we're going to look at Denzinger 714. And this is key because this is one of the points that he makes about the, again, this is cantate domino. I'm going to read it directly to you. The Roman Catholic Church firmly believes, professes, and proclaims that those not living within the Catholic Church, not only uh, pagans, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics, cannot become participants in eternal life, but will depart into everlasting fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41, unless by the time of the end of their life, these have been added to this flock. And that the unity of this ecclesiastical body is so strong that only those who remain in it and in its sacraments, the sacraments of that church, are of benefit for salvation and do fasting and almsgiving and other functions of piety and exercises of Christian service and produce that produce an eternal reward. And that no one whatsoever almsgiving he has practiced, even if he sheds his blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he remains in the bosom and unity of the Roman Catholic Church. So that's cantate domino, and we know that that is night and day contradictory to Vatican II's declarations on ecumenism, uh, uh, Dignitatis Humanae, uh, 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 all the different declarations that deal with, uh, even Lumen Gentium has statements on this. Um, I mean, in Dignitatis Humanae, it talks about how you, you can even be, like, God respects your Satanism, if you want to be a Satanist. God respects that freedom to follow your conscience to be a Satanist. <laughs> but of course, this is not going to work because, um, as Pontrello says, the set of a conscience are actually correct to go to Satis Cognitum, Pope Leo XIII's famous encyclical, and point out that heretics and schismatics remove themselves from the body of Christ, right? And then, because that's always cited by Set of Acontis as well as Mystici Corporis, the encyclical of Pius XII, about the mystical body. So who is a Catholic? Well, a Catholic is a person who holds to all the dogmas, according to Satis Cognitum and Mystici Corporis. So uh, in 
Pontrello's approach, he talks about the fact that uh, we have to adhere to the way that the Roman Catholic Church defines its own conception of who's a Catholic and who's not. The next point that he goes to is he talks a little bit about cum ex apostolatus officio, uh, which deals with uh, vacancies, with which deals with uh, the anti-pope claims, right? It is the bull of Pope Paul IV, uh, 1559. It's a codification of the explanation of ancient Catholic law that only Catholics can be elected pope. So you can't have a non-Catholic who's elected to the papacy. Uh, and if a non-Catholic was elected, then it would mean that the... Oh. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Office becomes vacant. This 1559 papal bull, as well as the 1917 Code of Canon Law, consider uh, are, are continued, or at least theoretically, as still part of canon law. Canon 188.4 says, Through tacit resignation, accepted by law itself, all the offices uh, in the church become vacant ipso facto without any declaration of a cleric if a cleric, point four, publicly forsakes the Catholic faith. And Pontrello points out that this is still part of Roman Catholic canon law, right? It does include in its present day code, as far as I'm aware, not just the 1917 code of canon law, but the present code of canon law, which what was John Paul's, John Paul's update to canon law was like 1983 or something. It still includes the canon that there are ipso facto latte sententiae, right? Excommunication, which is the excommunication where you excommunicate yourself. An example of this is abortion, abortion, <laughs> Right in the Roman Catholic system, abrasions lead to ipso facto. You are ipso facto excommunicated, right? If you procure abrasion, and that's one of the many sins that removes one from the body. Right. So we're laying out the argumentation of the set of contest here. Right. So cum ex apostolatus officio talks about that non-Catholics cannot be elected to be pope. And uh, the Code of Canon Law 188.4, which reads that if a person publicly defects from the Catholic faith, then there is no need for the declaration of a cleric or a council because that person has left. Now, the point of debate, of course, with the Senate of Contus is that does that actually line up with Vatican I? Now, in theory, yes. I mean, you could say that... Cumex Apostolatus Vicio allows for uh, the office of the papacy perhaps to become vacant if the Pope were to ever adopt a heresy. 
However, that's not the same thing as arguing for the indefectibility of the church. Those are two different topics. Because as we'll see, Vatican I is very clear about the nature of the church, its indefectibility, the office of Peter being rem, uh, remaining in the church t- until the return of Christ, not just until some vague end of the world where, oh, we're going to have 70, 80, 100, 200 years of no pope. No, no, no. The office of Peter, which is not just an ethereal, invisible church that you sign up for online through email, the office of Peter, meaning the successors to Peter in the actual Roman see until the coming of Christ is what Vatican II, I mean, Vatican I says. So ultimately the issue, according to Fontrello, and I think he's correct, is going to be not about debating Vatican II, not about debating the status of this or that pope, but the indefectibility of the church in the Roman Catholic system's definition. That is going to be the ultimate debate here. And he, he posits, said of Acontis have successfully shown that the defection of the Catholic church happened at Vatican II or perhaps subsequent around the time of Vatican II. The problem is going to be that how can the church of Rome or the church in Rome, defect, and the Catholic Church still remain the church. The post-Vatican II church, then, is the real Catholic Church, and Francis is the real Pope, because the Roman See does not defect and does not lose its fundamental, essential constitution, as we'll see. Or, infallibility of the papacy is a myth, and the papacy is not part of the original foundation of the Roman Catholic Church. So the, the reasoning is going to be, I think, very clear from Pontrello, and I think he's going to make his point. So he goes on to say that this leads us to five points that we will discuss. A defection in the Roman See occurred in fact, or the vicar, which leads to the conclusion that the office of the papacy as the vicar of Christ is something accidental to the church and not essential and fundamental to its constitution of unity. But it is, and that's going to be the key kicker here. He says that this leads set of a contest point three to a papacy of desire, right? Many of the set of a contest debate, baptism of desire, right? This is the goofy debate amongst the absurdity of the Roman Catholic world, right? Father Feeney and all this stuff. A papacy of desire. Is there such a thing as papacy of desire? Where the church has lost its fundamental constitution namely its visible head in the Roman Sea amongst the Roman Curia for 70 years now, or excuse me, 60 plus years now. And so now we have a papacy of desire. (laughs) Is visible hierarchical unity something accidental to the church or fundamental to the church's constitution? If said of a a consciousness is true, then visible hierarchical Episcopal unity is not essential to the Roman Catholic Church. It's been lost. Because there's no, I don't care who you are, there's not a single set of a contest who can honestly come on here and claim that set of a contest represents the true Catholic Church and possesses unity. (laughs) Possesses, I mean, Protestants possess more visible unity than this clown troop, Okay. Is apostolic authority an Episcopal order 
merely accidental to the church or is it a fundamental essential constitution of the church in the Roman Catholic view? And I like that John Pantrello leads off with prelest because if sedevacantism ends up in anything, not every sedevacant is necessarily in prelest, but it leads to delusion. It leads to the prelest, the delusion that you possess the bark of Peter, that you possess the unity of the church as an online ELARP cult, as a bishop in Florida with no one else, as a lunatic in Oregon or wherever these people are. Prelest delusion is the erroneous belief that is held in the face of all of the evidence to the contrary. In Unum Sanctum, Pope Boniface VIII wrote, there, has, there had been at the time of the deluge only one Ark of Noah. This Ark of Noah prefigured the one true church, the Ark. Having been finished into a single cubit, it has only one pilot and one guide. Noah, and we read that outside of that Ark of Noah, all that subsisted on this earth were destroyed. Who do you think Boniface VIII is talking about? Boniface is saying that the office and successors of Peter are that one ark. The ark and bark of Peter, B-A-R-Q-U-E, are not shut up in some small town in the middle of nowhere. They're not a band of crazy people living in the desert who think that the episcopacy has died and that there's maybe one priest left. No, no, no. All of those things end up denying the indefectibility of the church in the Roman Catholic system. So let's see how that's the case. He begins his book by talking about indefectibility. And he talks about how the set of a contest will get around the doctrine of indefectibility by saying that well, Christ has promised to always be with the church and, and he's promised that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So it will remain essentially what it is. But that doesn't mean that there will always be a true pope at, the, at every time in the history of the church. And it doesn't mean that there can't be interregnums or significant periods of time where there's not a living pope. Okay let's break this down though because is that actually the definition of what indefectibility is according to the Roman Catholic Church itself or is that the truncated definition of indefectibility according to preserve according to set of a contest to preserve the set of a contest thesis ah exactly two different things here because guess what the Roman Catholic Church actually already has a definition explanation of what indefectibility is and what its fundamental constitution and essential nature of its church are. And that's where the set of a disposition will completely fall apart and break down. Because in order to preserve that thesis of set of a conte, they actually have to deny the fundamental constitution of the church, its, its components and constituents, and they have to deny indefectibility in terms of the way the Roman church defines it. So they redefine indefectibility to be an ethereal, empty office, a vacant sea 
that you can unite with by desire but doesn't exist in actuality. So there's papacy in potentia, but not papacy in actuality. <laughs> in other words, this is a goofy version of Protestantism, right? So let's look at the, let's see, per, uh, properties of the church. I think this is, let's see, make sure this is, I think John is, Citing from Vatican one here. We're on page eight. If you have the book, the essential constitution of the church, can it change? Can it alter at any point in time, regardless of whether it's the last days or not? Can Vatican one tell us about the indefectibility of the church? And in fact, it can, let's see the properties of the church. According to Vatican one, the church has many other properties that are inherent and essential to her. Principle to these are the indefectibility, or excuse me, yeah, indefectibility in her being and existence, the infallibility in her teaching, and authority and power in ruling and governing. These three properties or attributes are denied by all non-Catholic sects because they otherwise could not account for their own existence or assign any plausible reason to not belong to this one true church. This is Vatican I explaining itself, right? Section 5, Article 9. We must now explain these properties and attribute or attributes indefectibility indefectibility is a property by which the church cannot fail it is that by which she cannot either lose or have diminished any of her divine qualities or gifts even for a short time the doctrine of the indefectibility of the church can be comprised in the following propositions the whole church is indefectible one part of the church namely the apostolic see is indefectible the particular church of this or that diocese or nation may fall away you got that the entire church, corporately, is indefectible. Only one C is promised indefectibility, the Roman C. And any particular nation can fall away. Perpetuity is included in indefectibility. Although, rigorously speaking, God has ordained otherwise, the church could... Uh, be perpetual without being in all respects indefectible as a man remains the same being even unto death although he fails in many respects both in soul and body perpetuity imports con continuation without interruption but indefectibility imports duration and immutability as well indefectibility means moreover that in infallibility infallibility extends only to those things that concern the church church's teachings and matters of faith and moral but it does not imply that she is to continue always to the end of the world, but that as long as she exists, she cannot err in these matters. Heretics, in regard to the indefectibility of the church, err on two points. The possibility of her defection and the fact of her defection. They have held various opinions about defection of this church. Some have held that the whole church can fail entirely for some time period. Some have said that the visible church can fail, but not the invisible church, as if these were two distinct churches. Other heretics affirm that although the church cannot fail entirely, she can do so in part, at least for a time, and even always by losing this or that attribute of perfection or retaining it, being maimed or vitiated. As to the fact of defection, all heretics hold that every sect of the church has in some way uh, in other words, all sects believe that they are justified because the, the Roman see has defected. 
Some date this defection to the Council of Constance, 1414, right? And then he goes on to cite, this is a uh, somebody talking about Vatican I. Let's see who this is. This is the writer... Uh, this is a writer who's explaining what Vatican I says. We'll look at Vatican I here in a second, by the way, so we realize I'm not making this up. His footnotes were small here. So this is a book, a traditional Catholic book, The Creed Explained by Arthur Devine from 1903. So we see that this is a this is right at the time of Vatican I. It's a classical definition. Uh, and we'll have uh, this deciding Vatican I explain what Vatican I says about indefectibility. So this guy goes on to cite uh, various Protestants who have different dates for when they think the Roman see defected. And then it goes on to say about proofs of indefectibility. The church's indefectibility. Uh, the promises of Christ list are listed as follows. That he would be with the church all of her days to the consummation of the world. That he would be with his church without fail to the pro- uh, so that the promises of Christ would, would be fulfilled and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And he would never cease to be with his church. Therefore, the church... Uh, in order to not fail, must be indefectible. The properties and attributes that are essential to the church flow from her original constitution and cannot fail. The church cannot lose them or suffer them to be impaired. For if she lost any one of them and then failed, and then there was some wanting a period of time in which the church ceased to exist, then the promises of Christ would be found to be false. At all times and all places, then, she must be able to supply with all due means of salvation uh, and thus she ought always to be able to, capable of being deemed the one true church. So we'll, we'll see this later because for the church to fundamentally alter in its own constitution, it would not have the ability to dispense sacraments to the world to save it. But in this goofy, stupid position, the Roman Catholic Church has defected. The Roman Church has defected. And now the true church remind, resides amongst tiny fringe set of occultist sects who don't have the ability to distribute the sacraments to redeem men. Except for a few groups who do think that they retain the succession or the goofy set of occultists who think that you can go to schismatic sects to get sacraments. So they think that valid sacraments exist amongst schismatics that you can get and schismatics who don't have valid jurisdiction are dispensing the sacraments to save people. But you only have valid jurisdiction in union with the apostolic seat. So it's total nonsense. The church cannot lose her constituent properties. That is the key point here. So a lot of these set of occultists will not include the important distinctions about the properties of indefectibility. They will truncate indefectibility to be, there won't be a true Pope who teaches error and we only hold what the valid Popes taught. That's not what the indefectibility and essential constitution of the church is, according to Vatican I and according to the definitions of Rome herself. The Catholic Encyclopedia, under indefectibility, it writes, among the prerogatives conferred upon the church by Christ, there are several essential characteristics. The church can never undergo any constitutional change that would make it as a social organism something different than it was originally. So the Roman Catholic Church can't be different from the one in 1200, from the one in 300, 
to the one in 1960. It can never become corrupt in faith and morals. It can never lose its apostolic hierarchy. It can never lose the sacraments that it communicates grace to men. It can never lose indefectibility. The gates of hell can never prevail against it. By the way, I know that every set of a conscience is going to say, yeah, we don't believe that it lost any of those things. But you do, and that's what we're going to demonstrate because we're going to demonstrate that what's fundamental to what they're saying is the Roman Sea. This is the key point that destroys all set of a consism. You can't have any of these things without what's fundamental to all of these, which is the Roman Sea. Now, and we're going to see, if, if set of a consism is true, what they need to actually show is that a Roman sea did continue past 1960, at least somewhere, right? I mean, you may have heard of the Cardinal Siri thesis. Now, this is not a really tenable thesis, but actually the Cardinal Siri thesis actually makes a little more sense because if there was a valid successor that was elected and not John the 23rd or Paul the 6th, perhaps somewhere else there was an exiled valid pope, maybe the set of a position would have a leg to stand on. But I'm sorry, where is the successors to Cardinal Siri? <laughs> if Cardinal Siri was the right pope, the real valid pope, right? that would be a more consistent position to maintain the indefectibility and the essential constitutional nature of the church and the Roman see. And by the way, guess what we're going to see in a moment? You know what? what is, what is part of the Roman See. It's not just an ethereal teaching office and, and papers and documents. The papacy is not papers and documents. It's a dude in a chair. And I'm not saying it's a magical chair, right? The chair could be thrown away. It's the dude who occupies the chair of Peter. The one in Rome. And yes, theoretically, he could move that seat to another town like the Avignon papacy and all that nonsense, right? Yeah, but it's still the office of Peter who's continuing that succession, you see. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So what we're going to start to see and realize is that in the set of a contest thesis, in order to preserve its, its view that it is the true church, the fundamental constitution of the church has actually changed. It hasn't just changed for an interregnum period. It's actually changed in its own nature in terms of the Roman see itself. And Pontrello is going to hammer that home chapter after chapter after chapter. Because the set of a contest, if they're going to be consistent, they can't just have an, a vacant see in Rome. They have to toss out the Roman Curia. Because who's going to elect another pope? 
right? What does an interregnum assume? An inter-reign. It assumes another successor. And you can't have one because all of the curia are apostates. That's why this position is so stupid. It's such a dumb position. You have to be dumb to believe this and really hold on to That's why the only people who hold on to this are fanatical weirdos. It's a dead-end position. The Roman Curia is part of the Roman See. Look up any of the Catholic Encyclopedia definitions of what the Roman See is, and it will explain to you very clearly, I'm going to show you in a minute, that the Roman See and its Curia are all part of the Roman See's jurisdictional governance of the church. That's why you can't reject the Holy Office. If the Holy Office says your teachings are heretical, you can't reject it. And you can't, and you can say, well, I reject uh, the Holy Office and the Pope that confirmed the Holy Office. Now you've rejected the Roman Curia and the Roman See, and you can't do that. There's no such thing as an invisible church Roman See. And this is the, this is what destroys all of Sedevacantism right here. And John Petrello actually makes a good point. He says that, if Sedevacantism is true, it actually makes sense to either have a, a Cardinal Siri thesis where there's a successor and the Roman Curia and the, or the Roman See continues on somewhere or the fundamental constitution of the church changes. <laughs> like it's got to be one of these, one of the two, right? Uh, now I don't, or you got to be a conclavist, but there's a problem because if you're a conclavist, not only do you have a bunch of literal lunatics and guys in trailers and guys in their mom's attic, like Michael, Pope Michael in Kansas or Canada or wherever he is, that's who you're going to go to. I mean, do you really think that Christ has bound up salvation and grace with some incel living in his mom's attic in Canada? Give me a break. It's if you're at that point, it's time to rethink this nonsense. So the trad understanding of indefectibility severely limits indefectibility and the constitutional nature of the church. This demolishes the set of a contest position. And Pontrello outlines that very clearly on pages 14, 15, and 16. Let's talk about the constant, uh, essential constitution of the church. Pontrello writes, the Roman, Roman Catholics... In Roman Catholicism, neither Jesus Christ nor Peter's profession of faith is the foundation of the church. Although the church's foundation is revealed by Peter's profession, his faith per se is also not the foundation. Interestingly, the foundation of Roman Catholicism is not a doctrine directly pertaining to God or Jesus Christ, such as the Trinity or the Incarnation or the Resurrection. In fact, from a Roman Catholic perspective, the foundation of the Church has been so firmly established and so well known and accepted by all Roman Catholics that it's not even included in the original creeds. Isn't that very interesting that the creeds don't have anything to say about Peter? Anything to say about this indefectibility? Nothing like Vatican I in the ancient creeds? But that's the foundational stone of the Church? Wouldn't it be in the creeds? How does John Damascus write an entire exposition of the Orthodox faith in his time, right, in the, in the, in the 7th century? And he forgets the office of Peter? By the way, he's a doctor of the church in Roman Catholicism. 
A careful study of Vatican I's dogmatic constitution, as well as other authoritative teachings of the magisterium, make it very clear what Roman Catholicism views as the dogmatic constitution of the church. Right? Christ set blessed Peter over the rest of the apostles and made him, him the permanent principle of both unity and visible foundation in the church. For no one can be in any doubt that indeed in every age, the holy and most blessed Peter, prince of apostles, the pillar and faith of the church is the foundation of the Catholic church. The Episcopal body of the church, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, that, by the way, was Denzinger 1821 and 1824. Catholic Encyclopedia says, The Episcopal body of the church is also infallible, but only in union with the See of Peter. And the See of Peter is not just a vacant chair. It's not just a platonic form. It's not just an invisible church. The See of Peter is an actual see in an actual city, in an actual Vatican, occupied by actual successors who are human beings. There's no Nestorian papacy in the sky and then this human papacy that you can reject. It doesn't work like that. The ultimate touchstone is found to be in communion with the Holy See. On Peter, Christ founded his church. Those who are not joined to this foundation are not part of the house of God. We have now identified the first component of the foundation. It is human. The foundation is Peter. But it is more than just Peter. Vatican I's dogmatic constitution on the church speaks of something called the sacred primacy. The sacred primacy, this is the point. So Peter is where we begin. Point two, sacred, not the idea of Peter, not letters about Peter, not Peter's letters, not the Bible, Peter, the dude. And that's going to be very important because this is an aspect that continues on. The successor to the dude, who's also a dude, not a thought form, not a rational proposition that you made up, not an online thing. Not an email, not a tweet, a dude. The next component, so that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, according to Denzinger 1821, is the primacy. Peter and primacy. The sacred apostolic primacy. Now notice, do the set of contest point out that these are the fundamental constitutional aspects of the unity and essence of the church? No. They talk about being united to the vacant see and the true popes. They don't talk about what is fundamental to the constitution of the church. That's why John Pontrell's book is so devastating. And this is Denzinger, 1821, and then it's followed by uh, Satis Cognitum of Pope Leo XIII. So we've got Peter, and we've got the sacred apostolic primacy of Peter in this office over the rest. The primacy is described as a primacy of jurisdiction, honor, and direction and control. It is universal. It is full, supreme, legislative, jur- juridical, and punitive. Peter and his successor, his office, has sacred primacy that is legislative, judicial, and punitive. For our purpose. Sacred apostolic primacy can be called authority. 
The Bishop of Rome is not just first in honor and direction, but also first in universal jurisdiction, authority, power, legislation, and punitive punishments. He can punish. He can say, you're out of here. 26 years after Vatican I, Pope Leo XIII wrote the famous encyclical Satis Cognitum, where he says, From the text of Vatican I, it is clear that by the will and command of God, the church rests upon Peter as a building rests upon a foundation. Now the proper nature of a foundation is to be a principle of cohesion and unity for all the parts of this building. It must be the necessary condition of stability and strength. Not a vacant seat, not an ethereal idea, not doctrines and letters, the actual seat of Peter and the dudes in that seat. How could he fulfill his office without the power of commanding, forbidding, judging, and using full jurisdiction? So, is that it? Peter, apostolic primacy? No, no, no. We're not done. That's two points. What's next? Next is Rome. Rome. Not tiny towns in the desert. Not tiny towns in Florida. Not tiny towns in some city. Not lame dudes on the internet. Not idiots on the internet emailing like madmen. Not demons on the internet. Rome. the What Rome? The Rome of platonic ideas? No, the Rome that's over in Italy. That Rome, dummies. Rome. Watch the First Vatican Council dogmatically proclaim Rome. Denzinger, 1824. Up to this time, Peter lives in and presides always and exercises his judgments in the successors to the Sea of New Mexico. No, no, no. Wait, the Sea of New York? No, the Sea of Rome, R-O-M-E, Denzinger, 1824, which was founded by him and consecrated by his blood. Oh, so wait a minute. So there actually is a special place in Italy that is the Roman Sea. Therefore, whoever succeeds Peter in this sea, this chair in Rome, duh, according to the institution of Jesus himself, holds this primacy of Peter. So it just summarized the things that we just read. Blessed Apostle Peter is the foundation of this, of this church. The apostolic total primacy and jurisdiction and punitive power of Peter is the second point. And this is the dude in Rome, Vatican I. You just got demolished. Is that all? No, that's not all. We're not done. So that is Denzinger 1824, because they're going to say, we don't disagree with that. We, we agree with that, but there's no successor in Rome, really. We'll see about that. What does it mean when it says Rome? Does it mean the city? No. Does it mean the diocese? No. Does it mean the Vatican City State? No, no, no. It means the Holy See of Rome. That's what Rome is explained to mean here. Is that just picking and choosing from the documents of the sea? No. Sorry, trads. You have to follow the guy in that chair who succeeds. Who is the guy in that chair who succeeds? 
do you get to individually pick which guy you want? Now, if that's true, which is what sort of a contest and practice do, right? In, in, in their day to day, that's what they do. I'll, I'll decide back to Pius XII. That's the last one that I'll take. What do they do? They do that. They pick, right? No. Because guess what? When it says the Holy See, that includes the Roman Curia. This is devastating. The Roman See, the Apostolic See, the Roman Church, and the Holy See. In a canonical and diplomatic sense, the term is synonymous with Apostolic See. The Holy Apostolic See of the Roman Church and the Roman Curia. Because guess what? When the Roman Curia makes decisions on things, do you know why it's authoritative and binding? Because the Pope signs off on it. That's why. That's why you have to accept the juridical decisions of the Roman See and the Roman Curia because the Pope signs off on it. Duh. You can't reject it. Because the universal ordinary magisterium is under the Petrian charism of infallibility and the universal, excuse me, the ordinary non-universal magisterium must be accepted with docility, even if you think it's wrong. So you can't reject excommunications. You can't reject the punitive decisions of the Pope because no one judges the first C. The first C is not arbitrarily which guy you think is valid or not. The first C is the guy that the Roman Curia recognizes as that guy, that successor to Peter. You don't get to make that decision. Therefore, you're a schismatic and a heretic on your own stupid church's definitions. Thus, in order for Sedevacontism to maintain its dumb schism and heresy, it has to truncate what the office and see and an extension and, and curia of Peter is. And to say that it is a vacant office that you're united with by desire through internet LARPing. When in fact, Roman Catholic theology actually defines the Roman curia as follows in canon law. What is the, what is the Roman curia? The Holy See includes the central government of the Catholic church this belongs to its essential constitution. Canon 360 says the Supreme Pontiff conducts his business of the universal church through the Roman Curia. These acts are in name with his authority for the good and service of the whole church. Now, a set of a contest will say, well, but there, the Roman Curia isn't essential to the church because it didn't exist perhaps in the third century. It didn't exist at some arbitrary point in time. It doesn't matter because this has already been established now for many centuries as to how the popes are recognized and received. It doesn't happen in any way other than the Roman Curia in Rome picking the next guy and receiving him and then the rest of the world accepting him. So in other words, for set of a contism to maintain its thesis, the fundamental constitution of the church of the Holy See in Rome has to defect. It has to become apostate at some arbitrary time. It has to lose its essential constitution and structure and be truncated down to not these things that I listed as successors in the Roman Curia and indefectible guy in, in Rome. Oh, now that was done with in 1958 
Vatican II, whenever, pick your date. And we need to then understand, well, at, then at what point did all of the Roman Curia apostatize? Because now the constitution and competence of all of these tribunals and institutes is also lost, according to Sedevacantism. In this code, the terms of apostolic seed did not mean only the Roman pontiff, Canon 361, but also the Secretary of State, the Council for Public Prayers, the, and all the other institutes of the Roman Curia. This is why it makes no sense to say, I'm only going to follow the Pope and what I decide I think he's saying is true. And if the Holy Office were to say something heretical, I don't accept it. You have to accept the decisions of the Holy Office because they are part of the Roman See and the Roman Curia. This is basic Roman Catholicism. All of these above comprise the Roman Church. The Roman Curia is part of the Roman Church. This is explained in the Catholic Encyclopedia on the section dealing with the Roman congregations and the Roman Curia. I'm going to put those in the chat for you because these clowns won't even think that's true. They won't even read it or look it up. So there's the Roman Curia. Did I put Curia congregations? Here's the congregations and the Curia. You have to accept those. You don't get to pick and choose what aspects of the Roman See and Curia you will accept. And all the Sedevacantists do. They truncate it down to what they want it to be. And they say, I'm not going to accept a perpetual successors in that office over in Rome, in the guys in Rome and the, and the Roman See and the Roman Curia and all those cardinals who elect him. I'm not going to choose that. I'm going to pick the guys that I want to accept. Definition of schismatic right there. And not only is this schismatic, the fundamental constitution, according to Vatican I, of what the Roman Church is, which includes the Roman Curia and all the stuff I just listed, has now defected. That's why you lose in this losing, headless body position. What is the Roman Pontiff? Ludwig Ott states, according to Satis Cognitum and Leo XIII, the divine founder of the church, Jesus Christ, willed that the church should be one in faith, one in government, one in communion, and he appointed Peter and his successors to be the foundation and center of the unity of the church. You had a headless body for 60 plus years. Therefore, the fundamental constitution and unity of the church has obviously been lost. Is that unity invisible? No, it's visible, and it's visible Episcopal successors. That doesn't exist anywhere in the set of a contest world you've been duped by dumb cult leaders that's why when they try to they, these people try to respond to me all they do is go against personal issues they try to bring up personal nonsense because they can't actually argue this stuff this book demolishes that dumb cult just on the face of it it's obviously not true What about living successors? Guess what? It gets worse, said Vicontis. Because there's living successors. There's no baptism of desire. For, there's no papacy by desire. There's With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Living successors to Peter. Until the end of the world. Until the coming of Jesus. Vatican I does not say the successors to Peter are at some amorphous until the end times. And then we insert the stupid set of a contest thesis of 60 plus years of no head of the church. A headless body for 60 plus years. No, it does not say that. It clearly says until the return of Jesus. And again, the fundamental constitution of the church would be lost, according to Vatican I and Satis Cognitum's explanation of Vatican I and Ludwig Ott's explanation of Vatican I and Satis Cognitum, if it's a headless body for 60 plus years and we're in the end times. It's just retarded. Set of accountants are forced to do uh, an account of the church's defection near or at the time of Vatican II to make sense of this. Just as a human person has a physical head and a physical body, so likewise, according to Pope Leo, does the church. A visible head belongs to the essential constitution of the church. Because although Peter's life would come to an end, the church's unity and government established by Christ, according to Roman Catholicism, must continue in perpetuity with the same fundamental constitution. Leo XIII provides a meticulous explanation of this as he says, the Roman pontiff possesses supreme jurisdiction in the church jure divino. It was necessary that the government of this kind, since it belongs to the constitution and formation of the church, as its principal element, its principle of unity, its foundation of everlasting stability, can in no wise come to an end. Did you hear me? Satis cognitum. For the set of a conscious thesis to be true, this fundamental office characteristic of unity and jurisdiction has come to an end for 60 plus years. How dumb are you? There remains, therefore, the ordinance of truth, the office of Peter, he's saying, the rock, and because Christ foresaw that the government of the church would need this, right? Therefore, it was it was conferred to Peter. He goes on to say, the bishops that are separated from Peter and his successors lose all jurisdiction. Now, if there's not been a successor to Peter for 60 years and the entire Roman Curia who could elect the next pope are all apostate Vatican II heretics, then there's no jurisdiction, dummies. The entire church has lost jurisdiction which is fundamental to her constitutional unity, you only have jurisdiction in union with the successor to Peter. So guess what? The interregnum argument doesn't work. This is not comparable to an interregnum because an interregnum presupposes a successor. You can't have one because all of the people who would elect the successor are heretics. And thus outside the church, thus the fundamental constitutional unity of the church has altered since when? 58, Vatican II. It doesn't matter. Because all of those cardinals who would elect the next guy are heretics. Because they all say, except Vatican II, dummies. (laughs) 
Give it up. It's over. It must be clearly understood, according to Leo, that the bishops that are deprived of the right of jurisdiction, they lose this if they if they secede from Peter and his successors, because in this succession, they are separated from the one foundation, the only foundation upon the whole edifice, which the whole edifice is built. Again, the whole edifice is not built on a vacant seat. It's not built on a bunch of epistles. And encyclicals, it's built on Peter and his successors. And by the way, we're going to see that's until the coming of Jesus. It's not up until some amorphous 100-year period, 200-year period where there's no Pope. That's obviously not what Vatican II says. But the set of contest all lie in order to maintain this goofy thesis. All those, therefore, who are outside of this edifice are separated from the fold. They are excluded from the kingdom of God. And obviously, they don't have jurisdiction. Now, note, Leo the Thirteenth is talking about the authoritative government that Christ gave to the church. And it belongs to her constitution and formation. This is the essential constitution of the church. He stated that the office of Peter would have ended with Peter's death had Christ not arranged for its transmission through its human successors. Did you notice that? That he actually says the human successors are fundamental to this office. All of, all of Sedevacontism necessitates that that is not fundamental to the constitution of the church and to that office. Because they don't have one for 60 plus years. So they have to say that it's not fundamental to the church. Otherwise, the church has not been around for 60 years. Well, since they believe the church obviously hasn't died, then the office of of Peter in terms of successors is not fundamental to the church and her unity and her jurisdiction. But they are, according to all these documents, dummies. So, what's needed? Blessed Apostle Peter. What what, what are the, the fundamental constituent parts of this foundational structure that... John Pantrello lists the four marks of the papacy, you could say. What are the four marks of the papacy? According to Pope Leo XIII, blessed apostle Peter himself, the apostolic primacy of Peter, the Roman see, and the Roman pontiff who sits in that see. Set of a contism has none of these. Because guess what? You can't get half of these. You can't get two of these. You get them all because they all go together. You can't be a Nestorian papist. You can't have the office of the papacy and not the actual papacy dummy. And to say that you can is to deny the fundamental constitution of the church and her indefectibility and her ability to provide the redeeming sacraments to the world. If the Second Vatican Council marks the defection of the church, then Christ has not provided to the world valid jurisdictional sacraments by which they may be saved. Where do the set of get their jurisdiction? Oh, they don't have it. Because guess what? You only have jurisdiction in union with the successor to Peter. So they say, oh, it's, a, it's, it's an extreme situation. It's an extremist. Oh, but wait a minute. This was promised to continue in perpetuity 
until the return of Jesus. This is a threefold office of the bishopric of the episcopate. This is the next point. There's no such thing as all the bishoprics dying, all the bishops being in heresy. That's impossible. Because the indefectibility of the church is not promised to the lay faithful, the audience, but to the teaching church, the episcopate. The priests are not the episcopate. They're lesser members of the episcopate, the presbyterate, but they're not the episcopate. The episcopate is the bishops. And many of these set of contest groups don't even have bishops. They don't know where to go. There aren't any. Where are the valid bishops and guess what you don't have licit sacraments and jurisdiction without being in union with the successors to Peter and if you don't have successors to Peter then the church has defected dummy hierarchy what is the hierarchy the hierarchy of the church is the royal office of the ruler of priesthood the Episcopal College in union with the Bishop of Rome and his successors. That's the, that is De Fide in uh, Father Hardin. He defines that. The Council of Trent states that the Catholic Church and its hierarchy are a divine ordinance which consists of bishoprics, priests, and ministers. And if you don't believe that, then you are anathema. So you can't hold that there are no Episcopate anymore. And some of these set of conscious groups do hold that. Now, some of them will get around this and say, well, maybe we just don't know if they're in. We don't know where they are. We don't know where they are. Oh, wait, wait a minute. I thought that the visible church can't lose her visible structure and unity, but nobody knows where the valid, truly Catholic bishop is. But guess what? It can't just be some random bishop. The indefectibility is not promised to random ass bishops. It's promised to one C alone. What was the C that was promised indefectibility? Oh, the Roman C. Where is that one? Oh, that's over in Rome. Now, again, maybe if you wanted to save this thesis, the Cardinal Siri thesis could work, right? But that doesn't work. Because even if Cardinal Siri was some validly elected exiled dude, there's no successors to Cardinal Siri. Cardinal Siri's secret cardinalate that elected him doesn't exist. Where is it? Where did they elect Cardinal Siri's successor? Why did Cardinal Siri allow that to, to go away? How, if he was the true Pope, then he failed and defected. Duh. Because he didn't allow or set up the ability for a new college of cardinals or whatever to elect a successor. Oh, well, maybe there's a secret cardinal at some... Oh, yeah. Really? A secret cardinal? Then then the visible unity of the church doesn't exist anymore. That's the whole point of the Roman See and the Roman Curia. So that everybody in the world can look over there and say, oh, that's the guy who succeeds to Peter. It's visible. But no, on this dumb thesis, Jesus has allowed the entire Roman see to defect, apparently, in terms of its visible successors, and thus the entire visible church has lost its fundamental constitutional unity. It doesn't exist in the same way that it did for the last 1900 years, according to the Roman Catholic view. 
The Roman Roman Catholic Episcopate is the church, not the laity. This is made very clear in Catholic theology. There is the teaching church and the church that is taught. The lay people are the taught church. The Episcopate are the teaching church. So that Episcopal body cannot fail. The Episcopal body, the Mystici Corporis, does not exist outside of the successors to the Roman See. That is made clear in Mystici Corporis and in Satis Cognita. For the set of a conscious thesis to be true, it must lose that head for at least 60 plus years. The bishopric, however, according to Leo XIII in Satis Cognita, belongs to the essential constitution of the church. Now, wait a minute. Is that any random bishop? No. Again, the only bishopric that exists that's valid and licit and has jurisdiction and continues that fundamental constitutional unity of the church since the beginning is the one in union with the See of Rome. Where is the See of Rome? Is it in New York? Is it in Texas? Is it in Pope Michael's basement? No, it's the one in Rome. It's the one that the Roman Curia elects the successors to Peter in. That's the only one. What are the marks of the church? Does Sedevacontism retain the four marks of the church that every Roman Catholic knows? Well, of course they don't. The marks of the church are unity, sanctity, authority, and infallibility. Do you see unity in Sedevacontism? No. It's the most divided bunch of lunatics ever. Do you see holiness and sanctity? No. You see a bunch of lunatics and demoniacs who go crazy and start cults who are the most pharisaical, most prideful, prelest, obsessed people in the world. Do you see Catholicity? Uh, no. Does Catholicity exist shut up in some trailer park somewhere? No. Do you see the divine prerogatives of authority and fallibility? Uh, no. Because these clowns change their ideas every few years and they've changed their positions multiple times. All of them. All the set of a contest. Come on. Nobody can honestly tell me that any set of a contest group possesses anything close to the four marks of the true church. Well, but it's the end times and it's it's extenuating circumstances. And yeah, but it doesn't matter because you still have to have the four marks of the church even in the end times and the extenuating circumstances according to the Roman Catholic dogma of the papacy. You can't cancel out what Vatican I says about perpetuity and succession under this generic, oh, well, it's just the end times. Oh, it's just, well, it's crazy times. It's just crazy now. We don't have to listen to the dogmas of Vatican I anymore because, well, it's crazy end times. It's just crazy. Where does it all lead? Invisible church, heresy of Calvinism. As Pontrello excellently notes, Sedevacontus churches have counterfeit foundations. Metaphorically speaking, Sedevacontus don't have any bark of Peter. They sail a foreign ship. They sail a schismatic ship. At worst, they have a crew of passengers out upon the open sea with no bark of Peter whatsoever. They are like Protestants in that they have an invisible church that they imagine they're united to that has nothing to do with the actual sea in Rome and its successors. And they arbitrarily ad hoc pick which guy they will say was the last valid successor to Peter And it's so dumb because there's no way to ever have another successor to Peter again. Let's talk about the next crux issue here. 
which is the metamorphosis of the fundamental constitution of the church in the set of a conscious mindset. In the set of a conscious mindset, the Roman Catholic Church was, up into the 20th century at least, to Pius XII, still the Roman Catholic Church. And then at a certain point, the fundamental constitutional unity of the church in Rome and the Roman See defected. Now, I understand, we understand that the set of a conscious explains this by saying that, no, 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 Rome never defected because true Rome is a vacant see. But again, they're mistaking the fact that the Roman see is the Roman Curia and the whole Roman church under the successors to Peter, the dude, the living magisterium. This is what they ultimately have to deny is the living magisterium and the bark of Peter. So the question then becomes, when did the actual indefectible defection in Rome, whatever your view of the see of Peter is, when did that actual defection occur? Did it happen at the time of Vatican I? Did it happen by John the 23rd? Did it happen when Vatican II happened? Because, here's the key question. If the church that entered into the Second Vatican Council was not the real church, then the real church must somehow be accounted for immediately preceding the council. Moreover, that church's departure from Rome must be traceable from some time to the present day. Or again, the Catholic Church would have suffered a defection. Perhaps a better way to explain the problem is to pose a multi-part question. Where was the Roman Church and who comprised its offices before Vatican II at the time of the council and immediately following the council and to this present day? Let those who endeavor to answer this question take care to specifically address the church's foundational component that comprises the Roman papacy and not merely pockets of the faithful in the scattered set of Acontis sects everywhere. When one considers the church's indefectibility as part of its essence, it should be clear why it is impossible that the bark of Peter could set sail from a point A in 1962 and become a different bark by the time it reached its destination at point B in 1965. All of the essential elements that constitute the Catholic Church, including the Roman See and the bark of Peter in 1962, which were identifiable to the whole world by the time of 1965, suddenly don't exist. They're gone. Indefectibility in being or essence means that if the church that entered into the Second Vatican Council was actually the Roman Catholic Church, then the church that emerged from that council is still the Roman Catholic Church unless it can be shown to have stood in opposition to a false church that somehow was exiled or illegitimately ratified a council. In other words, where is the true Roman Church in the Roman See, right? We'd have to have some kind of Siri thesis, but nobody actually takes the Siri thesis seriously, <laughs> pun intended. That doesn't that doesn't work. But again, if we were going to salvage this dumb idea, that's what we need. We need a successor in Rome or exiled out of Rome who's recognized, and that nobody has that. So the fundamental constitutional unity of the church has lost its visible source of unity and structure. Did you hear me? It's lost it. And it can't be restored because all the cardinals who would elect and, re and recognize the successor are all heretics according to the set of contest. This position is so dumb. It is so easily refuted. The Roman church, the vicar of Christ and its Episcopal body either defected from the church formally and espoused heresy or 
This is the two options of the Sedvacontes. Or non-Catholic infiltrators overthrew the Roman church and replaced it with a bunch of phonies and counterfeits. So this is the two options that the Sedvacontes go to, right? Either the Roman church defected or the Roman church didn't defect. It's somewhere hidden secretly, maybe in an underground bunker. Uh, and it's been replaced by a bunch of infiltrators and body doubles and imposters. And he gets pretty funny here because now that would mean that the counterfeits now are offering seven sacraments throughout the world that are all counterfeit sacraments and the fundamental constitutional unity of the church has thus ceased. He goes on to say, both of these theories are arbitrary and they pick a day and they pick days upon which they think the church apostatized and they cannot decide which, what is correct. Nobody actually knows the actual date or time of this transformation. It really doesn't matter because what is of consequence here is the belief or the theory that it could occur at all. It is the actual transformation of a living visible organism being the Roman church into not being the Roman church. And I want to zero in on this because I am certain that set of cannot explain this without contradicting the indefectibility of the church. In fact, it is this belief that stands out as the first principal heresy in set of that a defection of the Roman see has occurred in some capacity. So if one were to state set of fundamental premise, it would sound like this at some arbitrary date or period, the Roman church, the bark appear, the mystical body of Christ metamorphosized into an end times apostate church of the antichrist there you go that refutes all these idiots how do we explain this uh excuses time to bring in the excuses it is the last with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's apostasy. It is the end times Kool-Aid. Jesus has allowed this massive def- defection to test the faithful. But... He already promised that in Vatican I, the fundamental constitutional Episcopal unity of the church would not alter until his coming. So Jesus has lied. Or the Roman Catholic Church just simply isn't the, Roman, isn't the church. Sedevacontus will offer multiple explanations to the true church, catacomb church type thesis to explain away the defection of the sea. Sedevacontists have the Holy See as an entire Episcopal body defecting, leading the rest of the church into the great apostasy. This is an active passive definition, excuse me, an active positive defection of the church and its hierarchy, going back to the actual bark of Peter itself. A legitimate captain and crew would have been would have sabotaged the bark and its passengers, and thus the promises of Christ to the Roman See no longer matter. In the second theory, Sedevacontists have the church's enemies enemies orchestrating a coup d'etat of the Roman church and its foundation. This is a passive negative defection from the faith because the hierarchy would have allowed the coup d'etat to occur. So both of them don't work. In the first uh, Sedevacontists thesis, the Roman hierarchy and curia are actively participating in the defection and apostasy. In point two, they're just actively allowing it. Oops, they neglected their duty. It doesn't matter because both of them are a defection. Dummies.
It doesn't matter whether they're actively participating in it or allowing it because it's the same defection. The point is that this indefectibility is the Roman doctrine of the Roman sea. The Roman sea and its successors can't defect. Catholic Encyclopedia states, the gift of an indefectibility is promised to the church by Christ in the words in which he declares the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And since the gates of hell, in order to overthrow the church, if it were possible, arise from all sides against this divinely established foundation, we necessarily proclaim that for the protection and safety and increase of the Catholic flock, with the approbation of the, uh, this is Denzinger, 1821, the sacred apostolic primacy is fundamental to the church that is what the solidarity of the whole church consists in the sacred apostolic primacy that's the sea of peter not guys out on their own remember the foundation vatican one is referring to is the papacy it's not articles of faith recited like the nicene creed this is key that Denzinger 1821, when it talks about the sacred apostolic primacy, is not talking about the creed. It's not talking about the faith. It's talking about the office and successors to the papacy. That's why Sedevacantism fails. Because it has to transfer it away from the actual see in Rome to arbitrary, invisible church. I'm going to pick the encyclicals that I think are orthodox papal encyclicals. He then goes on to talk about the loss of sacraments throughout the world, the loss of Episcopal unity, if the set of a conscious thesis is true, the loss of jurisdiction. Who is now possessing jurisdiction? Self-constituted apostolic hierarchs, that namely all of the set of a contest bishops, a handful, there's not even that many of them, a handful of them, who all hate one another and disagree with one another. So there's an, <laughs> another debate now between the two schools of set of a contest as to uh, prevailing theories that explain the transportation and transformation of the Roman Catholic Church. The apostolic hierarchy and its sacraments continue after Vatican II by way of self-constituted, in extremist, random-ass dudes who are out there. Namely, the set of the the set of occultist bishops who are a bunch of kooks, clowns, and spooks who all disagree with one another and obviously don't possess any visible unity. The other option is the, that the apostolic hierarchy and its sacraments have been lost indefinitely. That's your only two options, goofuses. But guess what? The church cannot lose her constitution and her essential property. She can't lose apostolic hierarchy and the offering of sacraments. The formal and material elements of apostolic succession are essential to apostolicity. However, Sedevacantism must propose that apostolic succession is perhaps inessential to the apostolic nature of the church. Somehow there's a transition, a transmission of the church without sacraments. But again, visibility of Sedevacantist bishops, priests, and chapels uh, somehow suffice for this hierarchical unity. That is a joke. Nobody actually can believe that the Sedevacantist chapels actually possess the visible hierarchical episcopal unity that is promised in Vatican I. Because again, they don't have the Roman See. The Roman See is defective. And the Roman See is not an ethereal, ideal thing that you can be, uh, you can be uh, 
I'm I'm united to the office of Peter, but not any successors past 1958. That doesn't exist, according to Vatican One's definition, Satis Cognition, and every Satis Cognitum, Mystici Corporis, and every explanation of what the foundational unity of Peter and his bark offer. So Pontrello moves on in page 54 to talk about the, <clears throat> to stress again that Sedevacantism is actually a heresy because it means that not only are the four marks of the church uh, significantly changed and altered, the actual unity and basis of the church itself, the Roman see, is altered and lost or non-existent or missing. And any of those, it doesn't matter which one you pick, that actually is heretical because it's a denial of Vatican I. How do we get to that? Well, because again, what are the four essential components of the papacy? Peter himself, the apostolic primacy, the Roman see in Rome with the Roman curia, and the Roman pontiff himself, the living guy, the actual successor. These are the things that make up the unity of the Catholic Church that's to continue until the return of Jesus Christ. You can't get one of these without the other ones. The church is not merely dogmas that you accept. You can't have a Nestorian papacy. You can't have papacy by desire. The papacy is the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church, and that is not just articles of faith, but the living successors in Rome. All Sedevacantists must reject that to maintain their heresy. According to the doctrine of indefectibility, the individual parts of the Catholic Church can defect or apostatize, but never the main stem of the Church, which is essentially comprised in the Roman Church, because the Church is founded by Christ to be essentially juridical. The Roman Church is comprised not just of the Roman Pontiff, but all the ensemble of departments and ministries that assist him with the government of the Church. Namely, all of the Roman congregations, the tribunals, and the office of the Curia, and hence why you must accept when the Roman Curia elects a pope. Obviously. That, dis- that devastates the set of a contest thesis. That is all from Ogeti in the classic Catholic Encyclopedia. The Roman Church, the Vicar of Christ, the central government and Episcopal body of, the, uh, uh, of Rome have either defected from the faith at some arbitrary point in time or the Catholic infiltrators overthrew it. Now, again, notice how both of these theses are ad hoc. The crux is that there is a contradiction in, in the Sedevacantus thesis on the fundamental constitutional unity of the church, its successors, its jurisdiction, and its indefectibility because they, wa- they have to divorce indefectibility from the actual see in Rome. And you can't do that. That alone destroys all set of contents. Let's look at some of the objections. What about the uh, Avignon papacy? The Avignon papacy, hey, uh, we got you uh, because the Avignon papacy was in a different city. Yeah, but it was the Holy See with a living successor in a different city. So it's nothing like the interregnum thesis and it doesn't work at all for set of contents. And in fact, this is what uh, Pontrello says, he says, if the Holy See were to re- relocate to a satellite location in a different geographical territory, you might have an argument, but you don't have that instead of a contism. Instead of a contism has a defection of the sea in Rome. 
and it contradicts the First Vatican Council. If Sedeva Conscious would like to claim that this has happened in our time, then let them prove it by showing a real Holy See that has moved somewhere. If, however, the Holy See was taken over by a non-Catholic sect and disappeared, then it's consent, then the constituent parts of the church have changed. The Holy See, there's another objection. The Holy See could have been driven out of Rome and into some secret exile. This would not contradict Vatican I, and we could still maintain the indefectibility of the church. If the Holy See was driven from Rome, then it must be visible and it must be known or else the Roman church has defected. Exactly. In that case, a set of a needs to unveil for the rest of us the real Holy See that's not Frank and his Curia. Because the whole world thinks it's Frank and, the, and his Curia, you see. Where is the real Catholic church with its fundamental papal office and its living magisterial successors? Oh, that doesn't exist. It's a Exactly. Because set of a consciousness is obviously not true. Uh, and in fact, it's funny because actually Pontrello has some kind of joke replies here. One of the one of the funny ones is that uh, you'll, the, the sedus will always say, you're citing uh, fallible theologians to prove infallible doctrines. And Pontrello says, which undercuts you because you're a fallible theologian trying to determine which see a Peter. Which, which successor to Peter you will accept. Next, he goes to La Salette. Our Lady of La Salette predicts that Rome will lose the faith, become the seat of the Antichrist, and the church will be eclipsed. Uh, guess what? I guess Our Lady of La Salette didn't understand that in a few years, the dogmatic constitution of Vatican I would actually say that Rome cannot lose the see, the, the faith, and defect. Sorry, but Vatican I and the promise of perpetuity trumps stupid Marian nonsense made up gobbledygook. We don't follow your Marian gobbledygook because the Marian gobbledygook's not true. Well, but we're in the end times. The end times mean that there could be a giant apostasy of the Roman church. Again, contradicts Vatican I, contradicts the perpetuity and the fundamental constitutional essence of the church according to vatican one according to society's cognitum according to all the theologians after vatican one who talk about what the fundamental unity of the church is and it includes peter his successors the primacy and actual magisterial guys in that sea in rome and the curia that's the only one that's the only one you see do you see now that that's what vatican one was declaring obviously that's what vatican one was declaring what other church is there you can't cite pre-Vatican I debates about whether a pope can be heretic. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that Bellarmine debated it. It doesn't matter. Because Vatican I is explicit about what the nature of the church and its unity is and how to find it and how to ground it and how it will be until Jesus returns. Not until an arbitrary decision that a bunch of kooks decide which last guy they will follow. Rome is Antichrist. If Rome is Antichrist, then the Roman see has defected and the indefectibility of the church is not true anymore. What about the Vicar of Christ? The next section, according to uh, Pontrello, that is the next heresy of the set of Acontis, is that the Vicar of Christ, the actual living guy, is actually non-essential to the church. Uh, interregnums, and this is what the stupid set of Acontis will actually argue, if there could be interregnums for 60 plus years, 100 years in the church, then 
the office of the papacy in terms of an actual visible living successor is not fundamental to the unity of the church. If the church can still exist for 60, 80, 100 years without the Pope, hello, you've already admitted the whole point of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy has said this for a thousand years. We don't need the Pope and we're still here without the Pope. So the set of Acontis admit the very thing that orthodoxy has argued. If an interregnum period can exist for 60 to 100 years without a living successor to Peter, then you don't need the papacy, dummy. So this ends up making the office of the papacy in its actual successor non-essential to the constitution of the church, which violates Vatican I and Satis Cognitum. Because Satis Cognitum and Vatican I and Mystici Corporis actually say that the human successors, the living magisterium, is fundamental to the unity and jurisdiction of the church. And where do you think that is? It's in Rome. Duh. Therefore, the interregnum arguments don't work. They actually undercut Sotobacontism. And how do they get around this? Interregnum assumes that you will get a new pope. But none of the set of contests actually believe that you will get a new pope. All of the previous interregnums anticipated a successor. You can't have a successor in your stupid set of contest cult because the Roman Curia are all apostates. Thus, it is a dishonest position that lies about what the Roman Catholic dogma at Vatican I actually is. And in order to get around this, they are a bunch of shrewd liars. An interregnum in the past is not a defection. To use an interregnum argument to be consistent, you should become a conclavist because you need a visible successor to the office of Peter. And the, the conclavists, for being the lunatics that they are, are more consistent than the, than the set of contest. Because the conclavists understand that the actual living vicar, who's the successor, is not accidental to the church, but fundamental and essential to the constitution of the unity of the church. So, to make an analogy between interregnum and sedvacontism is a false analogy that's dishonest and it lies about Vatican I. A 16-year vacancy is not like a 60-plus year vacancy because the vacancy in interregnums assumes and presupposes a coming successor. And on the set of a contest thesis, you absolutely, literally cannot have a successor because the Roman Curia is apostate. Can you have an indefinite interregnum? And this is the point at which we are going to cite the last people you thought I would ever cite, Brian Cross. Now, I don't support Brian Cross. I think Brian Cross is a goofus. But I'm going to cite Brian Cross because he actually has a good argument about the fundamental unity and nature of the church in terms of its visible structure and its perpetual office of Peter. Now, Brian Cross is in communion with Frank, as are all of the people who write for Called to Communion. I don't even know if it's still, is it still even ongoing? I don't know. Uh, but if you're familiar with apologetics, you're probably familiar with Brian Cross's uh, Called to Communion. The Reformation meets Rome, right? It's a bunch of debates between Protestant theology and Roman Catholic theology. 
But what Brian Cross has done in this essay that I'm going to link here is shown that you cannot have visible unity, Catholicity, jurisdiction, the administration of the sacraments for the world, the Roman see, without all these elements that we've been listing. And he's going to show that. Because the visible church still has to be there in terms of its Episcopal unity. There's no invisible chair. There's no invisible office that you can be united to. So conclavists are more consistent because they don't believe in a Pope only in potentia. They want to have a Pope in actuality, right? To use the Aristotelian stuff. The Roman pontiff, according to Vatican I, realizes realizes in, in reality the actual unity of the church by exercising this primacy. The vicar of Christ is not a, an accidental uh, addition to the, uni- the unity and existence of the church. Set of Acontists actually don't understand this. The Roman pontiff is nothing more than a bishop or patriarch on the Roman on the set of Acontists position. The way the set of Acontists view the Bishop of Rome is actually the way Orthodoxy views bishops. Because we don't view any single bishop as fundamental to the unity and structure of the church. The set of Acontists view of the Pope and the Bishop of Rome is what we believe about bishops. That's the irony here. And they actually reject Vatican I because they have to reject what Vatican I actually says about the Roman See and the papacy to maintain their stupid position. Thus, we have a body without a head, and the fundamental constitution of the see in the church, the Roman see, has changed for at least 60 years. The Pope, as we all know, is the head of the church in the Roman Catholic scheme. But for 57, 58, 59, 60 years, we've had a headless body. The headless body contradicts the promise of Vatican I. So even the speculations of theologians who thought, well, maybe like uh, Father O'Reilly, you could have a 39-year vacancy. Actually, a 39-year vacancy contradicts Vatican I's teaching on the perpetuity. Because if you had a 39-year vacancy and the, uh, again, the Roman Curia became heretical, which is the set of conscious view, then it's impossible now to have a valid pope because all the Roman Curia are now outside the church. Ipso facto. This is so dumb. So, what is the crux of this argument? We want to boil, we want to boil this part down. Let's look at Pontrello's points here. Everybody can see this, hopefully. The purpose of the church is the permanent duration of the work of redemption. This is summing up everything we've seen so far. The papacy is the foundation of the Catholic Church. The papacy's primary function is unity. Rome, the city in Italy, the sea in Italy, is the foundation of the papacy. Rome identifies who the vicar of Christ is. The Roman Curia is part of that. The Roman pontiffs realize the unity of the church. That is the actual Roman pontiffs, not a invisible empty chair that you decide which ones you want pick and choose which encyclicals you'll you'll accept visible unity of the catholic church is permanent with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Union with the Holy See identifies who the hierarchy is and who the faithful are. Right? So once we understand these Vatican I points, right? This is all summation of Vatican I. We're going to see that this is the, the, the essence of what refutes the entire set of a thesis. The papacy's essential function is unity. The primary efficacy of unity, the, 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 excuse me, the primacy, the primacy's efficacy depends on a Roman pontiff in order for that unity to remain a permanent characteristic of the church. A perpetual papal successor is thus required. I will address this constitutional uh, section here below. Rome is the foundation of the papacy. This is Denzinger. In all ages, all have known that the Holy and Most Blessed Peter, chief and head of all the apostles, is the foundation of the Catholic Church. He received the keys of the kingdom from the Savior and the Redeemer of the human race. And he, up until this time, he always, always lives and presides and exercises judgments in his successors, in his bishops, in that Holy See in Rome. That is what Denzinger says in 1821 through 1824. Here we are concerned with the Holy See of Rome. This is the diocese where the Vicar of Christ and the eternal, the central government of the Catholic Church are located. We must remember a critical point that Peter's primacy is permanently bound to Rome. This essentially makes the Roman See the foundation of the papacy. Rome is who identifies the Vicar of Christ. Not you, not you lay people, not you crazies out there. Rome identifies the vicar. Therefore, whoever succeeds Peter in this chair, he, according to the institution of Christ himself, holds that primacy in that chair, not you. You don't get to pick that. This is not a system where you get to pick. The identity of the vicar of Christ is a matter of eternal salvation and damnation in this system. So that nobody would ever suffer any doubt or confusion as to who that is, Vatican I made it very clear then that the way to identify this recognizable permanent successor is to bind him to Rome. The faithful will always know who the vicar of Christ is by his occupancy of the Roman See, the one in Rome. Not by testing his orthodoxy and reading through his documents and teachings to decide for themselves if they think he's orthodox. Roman pontiffs thus realize the unity of the church according to Vatican I and Denzinger 821-24. For this reason, it has always been necessary because of the preeminence of the church of Rome for the faithful everywhere to recognize that in that sea in which the laws of communion emanate over all the churches, they as members are associated with this one head and coalesce into one bodily structure. Did you hear that? So you can't divorce the Roman see in Rome 
from the fundamental constitution of the church. I mean, how many times do we have to make this point over and over and over and over? And thank you all for these super chats. I'm going to try to scroll back through, but I got on, I got lost in this sort of fury here, but I told you we were going to deconstruct this totally. So here they're debating Putin. That's all they have to come to the chat and debate Putin. What a bunch of losers. Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, established in the Apostle Peter a perpetual salvation and perennial good of the church. Perennial. That's at all times. That's not up until 1960 and then 100 years of no pope. Perennial. It is a firm rock that will endure unto the end of the ages. Now, all these clowns have to say that, well, the end of the ages just means until the last hundred years. No, uh-uh, Mm-mm. doesn't work. Lying, lying, because Vatican I does not say that. Vatican I says until the return of Christ, until the end of the ages. Are we at the end of the ages? We're 60 plus years into no pope, you clowns. It then goes on to talk about the actual Holy See in Rome and the hierarchy and the faithful. Unity with the Roman pontiff and his successors is compulsory. We declare that the Roman church, by the disposition of the Lord, holds sovereignty over all ordinary power and citizens. It has jurisdiction over all. It is truly Episcopal and it is immediate with respect to its pastors and the faithful and whatever right or dignity, both as separate and individuals and altogether bound by the duty to hierarchical subordination and true and full obedience, not just in things of faith and morals, but also to discipline and governance. How many times have I told you this? You don't have the right to reject the decisions of the Roman pontiff. You can't just say, oh, I'm only going to follow the faith and moral stuff and not the juridical stuff. It clearly says in Vatican I, you have to submit. This is Denzinger 8, 24, 25, 26, and 20, excuse me, 18, 24, 25, 26, 27. You also have to submit to his juridical decisions and to the decisions of the Roman Curia that the Roman Pontiff has approved. If you don't do this, then no Catholic can keep his faith and salvation, it goes on to say. Now, again, I know that the, the, the perennial out of all these clowns is to say, we don't disagree with Rome. It's just that there's been no successors for 60 years. The Holy See cannot defect or fail. 195. The Holy See is not just an empty office. It's the actual successors, the four constituent points that we meant, that we mentioned earlier. Since the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, as if this were possible... We have thus a divinely established foundation. We judge it to be necessary for the protection, safety, and increase of the Catholic flock that the sacred apostolic primacy, namely the papacy, cannot fail. The uh, last resort of all of these Uh, uh, sectarians and schismatics is to resort to a great apostasy and that the Roman church has become the church of antichrist. So they have thus completely denied Vatican I and turned their whole system into a test for the elect. Why would Jesus declare that at at the time of Vatican I everybody needs to follow 
the successors of the Holy See in Rome, only to a few decades later test the entire world by turning, allowing the, the See in Rome that everybody sees, the visible one, to become Antichrist. So we have God the great trickster. And who's going to set us free from this trickster situation? Uh, a bunch of lunatic cult leaders online. That's the end result of this. 60 plus years of a vacancy is far more extreme than a mere papal interregnum. A mere papal interregnum, by the way, for many, many years, also, again, proves orthodoxy. Many of these groups will talk about people converting to Eastern Orthodoxy uh, as a denial of the Roman Catholic Church and a loss of the visible unity of the church. Can you, I mean, laugh, that's laughable. You lose the visible unity. None of these groups have visible unity. What do the set of accountants groups cite? The office of the papacy serves and will always serve as a perpetual principle of visible unity. No, no, no. It's not the office of the papacy without any visible successors. The office of the papacy has successors, according to Vatican I. And that's how it's a principle of visible unity. If it doesn't have successors, it's not a principle for visible unity, dummy. Unity of faith and communion. You can't have unity without communion. These groups don't have communion because they don't have any successor to Peter to commune with. The key point is that the office of the papacy is not just an office. It is a person also who inhabits that office. That person is the supreme teacher and pastor, and he is fundamental and essential to this four-point list that makes up who the Pope and his perpetual office is. The Roman See includes the perpetuity of Peter's office ascribed to the actual human persons who succeed the Roman pontiff. This is the total destruction of Son of Constantine right here. The Catholic Encyclopedia states that according to Pastor Eternus, the four chapters of the Constitution deal respectively with the office of the Supreme Head conferred upon St. Peter and the perpetuity of this office in the person of the Roman Pontiff and his perpetual jurisdiction and supreme authority in all questions of faith and moral. Until the end of the world. What are the five key points that we want to remember according to these principles? The person of the Pope. Peter's primacy is the underlying basis for unity. The primacy is perpetually bound to Rome, the sea in Rome, the one in Italy, not the one in your head, not online. The office of the papacy is the position of the primacy. The Roman pontiff must fulfill and exercise this office. These points are symbiotic in order to realize the end for which the Christ instituted the church and the papacy, namely unity. Thus, in order to have an office of the papacy without an actual successor that you're, not, you're knighted to is actually a Nestorian ecclesiology. Sedevacontus insists that they have not severed their connection to the foundations, but instead that they are united in, in essence to the faith of Peter, and thus they are in union with an office that has no successors. This unmanned office is referred to as eternal Rome, but eternal Rome in Vatican I and in Satis Cognitum is the Rome with the successors in the Sea of Peter, namely the Roman Curia. 
That is the ultimate destruction of Roman of set of Catholicism. There is no invisible Rome that can be the replacement for the actual Rome. There's no eternal, ethereal, platonic Rome that you are united with that doesn't have an actual functioning human successor. And obviously, Vatican I intends that that is going to be perpetual until the end of the world. There will actually be a human successor. The problem then is that the Holy See is gone. There's no coming back of the Holy See. There's no papacy of desire. There's no Nestorian papacy that's the material foundation of the church that's not actual. 60 plus years of no papacy leads to the new ecclesiology of the invisible church heresy. The invisible church heresy is the schismatic and it's schism 101. Every schismatic says, according to the Roman Catholic Church, that they're not going to accept papal XYZ. Thus, you can see that in the set of a cultist position, they are just like the old Catholics. They're not like the old Catholics in doctrine, but in their praxis and approach to rejecting the papacy, it's the exact same mistake that the old Catholics made. The old Catholics thought that they could be in union with some generic office or some ethereal idea of what Rome is and not the actual successors of Rome. And that's why Vatican I was so explicit when it rejects this, the, the various errors on the papacy. Pastor Eternus teaches that the human successors will remain uninterrupted forever. Vatican I, Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Session 4, says, moreover, the chief pastor, the chief of pastors, Jesus, the pastor of the sheep, established in the blessed apostle Peter, the perpetual salvation and essential good of the church that by the same author will endure always in the church, which was founded upon a rock firm until the end of the ages. That's the one in Rome, according to Vatican I, not an ethereal, eternal Rome that these people made up in their head. So, what about the fact that there are some 200 plus interregnums? It doesn't matter because the interregnum periods are not talking about an, an interruption in the successors of Peter at the end of the world. Pastor Eternus explicitly says, Peter will have perpetual successors in primacy over the universal church. If anyone says that it is not from the institution of Christ by divine right that Peter has perpetual successors in primacy and that their successors possess that same primacy, let him be anathema. Peter has perpetual successors in that primacy over the universal church. Perpetual successors in that primacy. They have perpetual successors, not mere primacy of the office. Perpetual successors. And all set of a contest must deny that there's been perpetual successors. They'll say, well, there have been up until 1958. And then they turn around and say, there's no perpetual successor for 60 years. I mean, this is to total retardation. Ludwig Ott explains, the primacy is 
to be perpetual in the successors of Peter indeed. Indeed, this primacy is promised by our Lord himself. The functioning of the primacy is to be preserved until the end by the unity and solidarity of the church, by the will of divine power, and it, it, it is to continue substantially unchanged until the end of time so that the primacy must also be perpetuated. Peter, like every other human being, was subjected to death. Consequently, his office must be transmitted to others. And this succession cannot continue. The structure of the church cannot continue without this foundation and without this flock and without this shepherd until the end. Most people cannot recognize the difference between a successor and a primacy. In English, the translation, the perpetual, is the adjective that defines the successors, not the primacy. It's not a successional primacy, a perpetual primacy. It's perpetual successors. Peter will have perpetual successors who share that same primacy. Uh, and that is a refutation of the set of Acontis heretics who talk about merely a perpetual primacy, not a perpetual successor. But as you can see, the definitions that explain how there's going to be unity presuppose that the perpetuity is to the successors, not just the primacy. And that's how Ludwig Ott explains it on page 282 of Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. What is most interesting about Ott is that, that he reaffirms the fact that the Roman pontiff is uh, belongs to the church's foundation. The structure of the church rests on the human successors to the Roman pontiff so that without successors, this primacy cannot be exercised and perpetuated. Obviously, the, the primacy cannot be per perpetuated, but neither can the unity and solidarity of the church if the succession is cut off for some extended period of time, according to Vatican I. He's arguing that that would be the case. The second confirmation comes from the Second Vatican Council. The Roman pontiff as a successor to Peter is the perpetual invisible source and, and of unity and foundation in the body, both of the bishops and of the whole community of the faithful. Obviously, if Christ really instituted the papacy, he did not intend for its vicar to be a sporadic presence in the church, as many of these set of accountants heretics imply, as if there could be 50, 60, 70 years without any successor. There's no vicar without a C. The Roman See is the only one that we know of. And even Ratzinger, right, will admit in Principles of Catholic Theology, 1982, page 198, that for the first millennium, the operation of the church was according to synodal orthodox conceptions, not Roman conceptions. What is the summary that we want to stress here on this whole section? This is on page 150. The purpose of the church is to be a perpetual, permanent duration of the work of redemption. The papacy is the foundation of the church. The papacy's principal function is unity. The papacy's foundation is Rome. Rome identifies the vicar of Christ. The Roman curia is part of that. The Roman pontus realized the unity of Christ. Visible unity is permanent. Unity with the Holy See in Rome identifies this hierarchy and the faithful. Unity with the Roman pontiff is compulsory, not you can't decide who you want. And the Holy See cannot fail or defect. All of those points totally refute set of occultism. John Petrollo then moves into talking about how uh, all positions in set of occultism ultimately result to a kind of um, invisible church where the Holy See has in some sense or in some way defected the one in Rome. 
because they have to divide the, the Rome that they want to be united with from the actual one over in Italy. And so they are condemned out of their own mouths because they will actually say the idea of an invisible church is heresy. And yet they are not united to an actual visible church, but to an invisible office that doesn't exist. They have an historian ecclesiology as John Pontrello hammers home. They lie by admission. They omit, they omit sections about jurisdiction and how you can't have jurisdiction without the Roman pontiff. They, for example, they will not point out about jurisdiction from Satis Cognitum. All right, let's see. So, Ad Cenarum Gentum. Uh, this is a number 12. Ad Cenarum Gentum talks about unity and jurisdiction being bound up together. You can't have unity without the jurisdiction of the church. This is Pius Twelfth. Ad Cenarum Gentum. He says, By the will of God, the faithful are not divided into classes of clergy and laity. By virtue of the same will as established... Excuse me, they are divided into clergy and laity. The same will of God has established a twofold sacred hierarchy, namely orders and jurisdiction. Besides, also has been divinely established the powers of orders through which the ecclesiastical hierarchy is composed of bishops, priests, and ministers. And this comes from receiving the sacrament of holy orders. The power of jurisdiction, which is conferred upon which is conferred upon supreme pontiff directly by divine right, flows to the bishops by the same right, but only through the successor to Peter to whom not only the simple faithful, but even all the bishops must constantly be subject and to whom they must be bound with the bond of unity. So jurisdiction is absolutely connected to communion and unity with the living successors to Peter. All set of a contest have to deny that in order to explain how they are not in union with the actual see in Rome. The apostolic succession is thus connected to the Roman hierarchy. And it is the Roman hierarchy and the Roman see that is said to be indefectible. It's not some guys in the desert, not some crazy guys that are the last indefectible people in the church. Rome cannot become the seat of Antichrist because the Roman see is indefectible. The Roman see has perpetual successors who are living magisterial successors, not an invisible Calvinist church heresy. That book, and now there's a lot more, but we've gone on for a good time now. If you want to read the full, detailed dismantling of this stupid heresy, be sure and get, as I've got links below, The Set of a Contest Delusion by John Pontrello. And let's see, if you want to, let's see, so here is Satis Cognitum, section 10. Satis Cognitum of Leo Thirteenth. It talks about in section 10, the fundamental constitutional unity of the church, how it is a divine society, how it will have successors to the end of the world. If you want to look at Mystici Corporis, the visible unity of the church and its constituent properties cannot change or go away or die. There is Mystici Corporis. If you want to see, as I said, the Roman congregations are part of the apostolic see. The Roman congregations cannot be rejected. The Roman Curia under the Pope are authoritative and cannot be rejected. They decide who the Pope is. You don't. What is the Holy See? 
The Holy See is the one in Rome, not the one in a trailer park. And they decide who the Pope is, and that's supposed to be who's indefectible. Vatican I, here's the Constitution on the Church. You can see very clearly what it says. Here's Vatican I. Dogmatic Constitution on the, on the Church, according to Vatican I. And it will go on to talk about... It's not that long. I, I recommend read the, the decree of Vatican I. It's very clear about the perpetuity of the successors in the See of Rome. And let's be clear about the living magisterium. You cannot reject a living magisterium at any point in the church, even if there's an interregnum. An interregnum doesn't destroy the living magisterium. All the set of contests pretty much have to deny living magisterium. And of course, then you can read about the indefectibility of the church from the classic traditional view. And you'll see that all the things that we argued tonight uh, are directly from John Pontrello's book. Now, I can't see the super chats, and I know a lot of you guys sent, so we got quite a few super chats. But where are they? How can I read them? So Elizabeth Claire one uh, one ninety nine. She sends twenty bucks. Thank you, Elizabeth. She sends another one ninety nine. Thank you. Um, that's the trouble with this new setup is that I can't read Super Chats. Alright, let's see if it's in here somewhere. Manage manage moderators, participants, total timestamps, top chat, top chat, live chat. Where are the Super Chats? Does anybody know in the... I don't want to be unfair to people. Does anybody know in the chat where... Because I had the same problem on the stream the other night. And I cannot find in the new system where you read the Super Chats. There's not a whole lot of options here. So if any of you guys know, because I don't want... People are going to get mad if I don't read the Super Chats. So there's analytics, viewer viewer activity. Ah, here it is. It's under viewer activity. Excellent. So Alyosha, $5. Please explain how a man grounded in coherentism is not grounded in foundationalism. Well, I mean, it, these are terms that could be useful either way. I mean, you, we don't necessarily have a problem with saying that we have foundational beliefs. But classical foundationalism is more of an assumption about how there are uh, beliefs that are not theory-laden, right? So can I just look at the world and assume that causality is a, a, a principle, a maxim that's not theory laden or does causality, if God exists, then causality means what it means according to the way God has constructed the world. You see, so I can't appeal to causality without the whole paradigm that makes causality coherent and sensible. But on the classical foundationalist model, the assumption is that, well, we all know there's causality Right? I mean, everybody knows that there's causality. So let's just look at causality and see if causality allows God to exist. So it's not so much about whether there's foundational beliefs or whether our beliefs are coherent. It's more so about uh, autonomy and whether there are principles or maxims that are not theory-laden. And they're not. There are no maxims that are not theory-laden. George's Journal, 99. God bless. Thank you. Wow. 
Fat Super Chat. Much appreciated, George's Journal. Free Thinker Silver, thank you for your work. Canadian 15, thank you. Free Thinker Silver, much appreciated. Jack, $5. Since man is born to a false state, can we get out of it? Well, we get out of the fallen state by participating in theosis, which is uniting ourselves to Christ through the Orthodox Church. Uh, so participation in her rites and sacraments, faith in the teaching Uh, let's see, COINTELBRO, $5. Yes, uh, it is true that Pontrello cites Burkhoff. Um, so what? Because the point that Burkhoff makes about the Ecclesia Dawkins and the Ecclesia audience, uh, the fact that he's a Calvinist doesn't detract from the fact that that point is true. Uh, I mean, the lay faithful have the duty to submit with docility according to canon law and according to Vatican I uh, in terms of the teaching of the papacy. So it doesn't matter that Pontrello cited Burkhoff because the point that Burkhoff makes is true, right? I mean, the Episcopate is the teaching church. The faithful are the receiving, hearing church. So that's a just a genetic fallacy because the argument and the point that Burkhoff makes is true. Uh, it's not being sneaky to cite a Calvinist when the Calvinist point is correct. Joseph Kerr, $10. If the Pope can invoke infallibility on matters and doctrine, then why does the Roman Catholic Church have any councils in the first place? Exactly. Why not ask the Pope to invoke infallibility on everything? Exactly. Why would there ever have been councils? Uh, and we remember Eric Ibarra's answer to this. Well, if the Pope didn't consult people, if everybody just wrote to the Pope, Jay, they'd uh, the, the Vatican would be a giant stack of papers everywhere. He wouldn't be able to move around. So that's why we 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 uh, we can just laugh at that, right? But actually, in praxis, yeah, exactly. I mean, why would they? Why would the council spend five days examining Leo's tome to see if it was orthodox? But they don't care. They don't care about what actually happened in the context of the councils. They don't care about all the canons that actually con contradict in the council's papal supremacy. They don't care. Rolfing stakes, $10. Thank you, Jay. I believe that you're the best apologist of our time. Keep up your work, good brother. Well, I don't know about that, but thank you very much for that. Uh, your kind words. Definitely not. COINTELBRO, $2. Israel survives 70 years without temple and high priest. Yeah, but you can't compare. This is that same guy that was in the, the my Discord you can't compare before Pentecost and the establishment of the author, the the office of Peter, right, to periods in the Old Testament. The periods in the Old Testament are before Pentecost and before the promise of the office of Peter and his successors in the Roman Catholic system. So your stupid analogy doesn't work. We already explained this to you, but you you're too deft to get this point. Elizabeth declared two dollars. Elizabeth declared two dollars. Thank you, Tamara Hathaway. Tony Box. Thank you. You're on the road. And it's very appreciated that you stream for us. Yes, thank you. Uh, but be sure, everybody, if you want, if you really want the full dissection, get uh, John Pontrello's book. Um, there's a lot more detail, but we've gone on for what, two hours? How long have we gone? I don't know. A long time. Uh, two hours and 30 minutes. I mean, you know, just get the book. It's not that long of a read if you are really into this topic because he will decimate these positions one by one by one. And this is what Roman Catholics do. They, they find one footnote where he cited a Calvinist as if that means anything, as if the argument that Burkhoff makes isn't true, as if the whole book is invalidated because one footnote. This is, this is what they do. Uh, they have nothing else, right? All they can do is 
hour-long attacks on people's personal lives. But that's okay because we're going to dissect the position, and that's what we did tonight. God bless you guys. Thank you very much. It's been a great uh, dissecting here. I don't think there's any other... I mean, and by the way, if you watch the set of a contest, Sex and Cults, um, it doesn't last. People don't last in these movements. Now, the cult leaders last, but the people in these movements... Two, three, four, five years maybe, and then they move on because it's a dead end position. And once you're at the point of the end times Kool Aid and you make the predictions about who the final Antichrist is and you're proven wrong many times, uh, it's over. It's over. So drop the cult. God bless you guys.